Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey, it's Owen Jones. Welcome to the podcast. Today, Rutger Bregman. Now, he is a really interesting Dutch historian and thinker. You may have seen him in that viral clip where he takes on the bankers at Davos. Uh, But he's also a brilliant author, um, Utopia for Realists, as an example. Uh, His work is really insightful, interesting, thought-provoking. And we've got loads to talk about. Will the pandemic change things? Is a new settlement possible? Uh, What can we learn from history? Uh, We cover a lot of ground. He's a really, really thoughtful guy and, and quite kind of a joy to have a chat with. One of those people just... You know, he's a good conversationalist. So I hope you enjoy this one. Uh, Just basic housekeeping. This podcast is offering an alternative to a broken media environment and also having some fun. Uh, If you want to help us expand, either use the supporter function or patreon.com forward slash owenjones84. And you can have a say that way over what we do, who we talk to, all that kind of stuff. If you give us five stars on iTunes, I will be your best friend forever. And you'll also help get the message out there. So that's really good. And please subscribe so you know when we've got more podcasts coming out. And we've got loads. After all of that, please enjoy the chat. It's a good one. Well, hello, mate. Wow. It is it's very good to, to sort of see you. I can see you. How are you doing? Well, I can see you, Owen. Very good to see you. How are we... How are we... How are we, you're over, obviously, in the Netherlands. How are mm-hmm. we coping over there right now? Well, what can I say? Um, we're, as, a, as most European countries, I guess, right now, in the middle uh, of the strictest lockdown so far. And it seems to be working a little bit. So in, the rate of infection is going down, but not nearly as fast enough as they, uh, they hope. And um, we're, uh, we're like the, the number lost in terms of vaccination. So I think it was only yesterday that the first per- person was vaccinated. So, uh, yeah, n- not a lot of reason to, be, uh, reason to be proud to be Dutch today, I'm afraid. No, no, I, I don't want to sow any illusions to the Dutch government. <laughs> They'll be, be interested. Well, they haven't screwed it up, obviously, nearly as badly as they have here. Uh, yeah. and, and we'll see, of course, what happens with vaccination. So what I might do, I might start play a little game to begin this pandemic. Uh, sorry, this interview. I'm going to throw some pessimism at you and mm. I'm going to hope some optimism comes back, not just for my own, the, the viewers of this channel's sake, but I'm not going to lie, maybe a bit for my sake as well. I'm not saying I'm using <laughs> you as a, as a uh, dispenser of optimism, but I'm going to see how it goes. Okay, so here's, a pes- here's pessimism. We're in this pandemic, biggest crisis since World War II. Now, when the financial crash happened, people went, well, this is awful, but look, at neoliberalism has been discredited. How's it mm-hmm. going to survive this? Something mm-hmm. new will rise from the ashes or create some new society. The market fundamentalism has been discredited. And then we got austerity and a bit of, often a bit of racist, xenophobic populism thrown in. Mm-hmm. And, and I know there were left movements. But the pandemic, again, is the danger that we think to ourselves, well, 
things have to change this time. They have to change. How can they go on like this? Hmm. And then they don't. What hmm. do you think? Well, look, Owen, I think there are really good reasons to be very anxious and pessimistic about the future. But I also think there are good reasons to be hopeful. Uh, I always like to, to use the word hope instead of optimism. You know, optimism suggests a form of, I don't know, complacency where you say, don't worry, things will turn out to be right. While hope is about the possibility of change and, and the fact that things can be different. It's why I like studying history so much, by the way, because history is all about why things can be different and they don't have to be this way. Um, and then if we, if we zoom out a little bit, and if we look at the past, say, 10 years or, or 12 years since the financial crash, um, it is pretty astounding and impressive to me to see the shift in political thinking. You know, we've all seen, I think this was a really good example, this, this editorial that came out in the Financial Times, not exactly a, a left-wing publication, uh, in April, you know, just after the pandemic started. And it was even the Financial Times writing uh, back then that we um, need to think about things like a guaranteed basic income, uh, higher taxes on the rich, a more activist role for the state in combating great threats like climate change and pandemics, and that we need to, quote, reverse the policy direction of the last 40 years, basically end neoliberalism. And as I said, you know, it's not some kind of crazy <laughs> or, or marginal left-wing publication saying, you know, it was the Financial Times. This is a, this is a newspaper that's, that's uh, been read by, um, by the rich and, and powerful people from around the globe. So that is a sign of the times. And I think it's something that, that was coming actually for a long time. That, that is uh, basically the result of a, of a big shift in, in the zeitgeist, uh, driven by, yeah, all kinds of thinkers. Um, and um, that that is really different from 2008, because I think with the financial crisis in 2008, the main problem was that people on the left or progressives mainly knew what they were against, but they didn't really have a strong vision of what they were actually for. But now we do have a much more robust and ambitious um, political program. And... Um, in that sense, I think, um, yeah, you can see this shift. Do you think one of the things that has come out of it is, without being all statist, and mm -hmm. I mean, we're both on the left, but I suppose mm -hmm. I think what we share in common is a belief in democratizing things rather than absolutely bureaucrats running things. But what the state's done during this crisis is show that if it has the will and determination, then it can do very far-reaching sweeping things mm -hmm. exactly exactly i mean uh it's a it's a good time to be well just an old-fashioned social democrat right we've we've clearly seen the value of uh, uh universal health care and having a well-financed government that is actually able to do things and we've also seen what happens if you don't have that right um so obviously a very telling moment again, early in the pandemic was when governments around the globe started to publish these so-called, the lists of the so-called vital workers. And you look at these lists and you wonder, where are the hedge fund managers? You know, where are the, the lawyers, the corporate lawyers and the marketeers? Well, they were not on there. It was mainly nurses and teachers and garbage collectors. Now, of, of course, we'd always known that, but crises make these things very, very visible. And I do think that could have a, have a lasting effect because people or, or politicians or activists on the left can basically say for the next 20, 30 years, well, remember 2020, remember 2021, 
who were the real wealth creators back then. And um, that is actually another thing that has really changed, I think, in the discourse uh, compared to 10 years ago, is that we have a much more sophisticated discussion right now around wealth creation and who are the actual wealth creators. Uh, there's a new generation of mainly uh, female economists, such as Mariana Mazzucato or Stephanie Kelton or uh, Kate Robworth in the UK, who, um, who I think are really good, not only talking about redistribution, which is obviously important, but also talking about who are actually the real wealth creators in our society and why don't we give them what they really deserve. And uh, yeah, I think that this pandemic has, has, has really shown that it's high time we do that. But if I was going to do an optimistic and then pessimistic um, mm -hmm. comparison with World War II, for example. So what mm -hmm. World War II, if I look just at Britain, is, you know, 1935 was the last election in Britain before the war. The Conservatives mm -hmm. won a massive, massive majority, uh, even bigger than the one they currently have in this country, um, not long after the Labour Party got thumped in 1931. But, and... Uh, what but what the war did is really mm -hmm. focus attention on injustices that blight society mm -hmm. so you've got the massive evacuation of children from the cities into the countryside and into you know more you know places outside of the big cities which were being bombed by the third reich and people saw for often for the first time really hungry urban children and mm -hmm. that helped lay you know a, a driver sense things have to change it laid the foundation for the for the welfare state the beverage report publishing 1941 that late you know created the outline mm -hmm. and you can see that theory in this pandemic you know it's you know people applaud out of windows the key workers but look how they've been underpaid for years and that must never happen again mm -hmm. uh, the self-employed how precarious they are the private tenants at this country and the mercy of private landlords the underfunding of health services the mess of social care uh, you know i could go on i mean you the welfare state not being this big comprehensive safety net mm -hmm. but there was a vehicle there were vehicles after World War II for that to happen. I mean, I wonder if there are those political vehicles there. And partly after World War II, a lot of Western countries were scared of the Soviet bloc and they felt they needed mm -hmm. to do these things to immunize against mm -hmm. the threat of revolution. Yeah, so you, need, know, I mean, you really you need communists for social democrats to be effective. <laughs> so social democrats without communists are, I don't know, they, they don't really do what's necessary. You need some pressure on that. Yeah, on the left there. So what do you think? I mean, do you, do you think there is a comparison? Do you think the parallels there with World War II are obvious or do you think, do you think it would be different? Well, look, obviously this pandemic is nothing compared to World mm -hmm. War II. It's absolutely nothing, you know, in terms of the impact of society and, uh, and the economy. But um, if you only look at, say, the polls or which political parties are in power right now, in many countries, you won't see that much of a difference. Now, obviously, in the US, you do see, see uh, quite some difference compared to a couple of months ago. I mean, it's, uh, what is it, Wednesday today, we just uh, had the mm -hmm. news coming in from the US uh, that the D Democrats are uh, taking the Senate. Um, but if you just focus on the polls, what you miss is, is this shift in ideas. So, for example, Joe Biden, right? We probably both agree that he's not a very exciting political man, right? He's like this dinosaur that has been there for decades and has actually implicated in many of the horrible and bad decisions that have, you know, um, have had really bad effects on, on, on so many American people in the past couple of decades. But then again, what you also must acknowledge that actually Joe Biden's climate plan is more ambitious than Bernie Sanders' climate plan four years ago, 
Or if you look at his proposals uh, on taxation, actually he wants to do double the increase in taxation that Hillary Clinton wanted four years ago. So there is, you know, real progress there. It's just not because Joe Biden is suddenly this inspirational politician. No, it's because activists have prevailed. You know, there's um, there are people basically have been have been doing their jobs, whether it's writers or people protesting in the streets against tax evasion, inequality, the whole Black Lives Matter movement, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera, um, that has had uh, a really big effect that you just that you don't see if you only just just focus on the polls, uh, right? And just focus on which political party is in power right now. I mean, the United States, I think it's really interesting because, you know, Bernie Sanders 2016 revitalized the American mm-hmm. left, made up that mm-hmm. campaign, helped make it political force. You saw the rise end of the squad of AOC and Ilan Omar, and they've been mm-hmm. also, their ranks have increased as well now um, in, in as a consequence of, of the elections last year. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um but do you think, I mean, you know, the, the Democrats have won their, or they're, look, as this is a hostage fortune, given this is coming out after, this isn't going out live, it looks at the time we're doing this interview that they're likely to win the Senate, but there's one pretty conservative Democratic senator, so there's a question mm-hmm. about how much they can actually get through the Senate, because he's... Yeah, obviously. Yeah. So what do you think, I mean, do you think, you know, some Democrats would say to both of us, look, your guy Bernie Sanders, he lost a centrist Democrat, you all said centrism won't work, and he came and he won in the presidential election, and mm-hmm. yeah, he might have grabbed some of these policies, but he will govern like a centrist Democrat, uh, and he will resist, uh, you mm-hmm. know, lefty ideas. What do you think? Mm-hmm. The Democrats will say, the centrist Democrats will say, we've been vindicated, and you guys have been proven wrong. Yeah, you know, I am... Uh... A Noam Chomsky kind of person when I look at politics. So I think he recently said that politics is is just constant activism, and it's all about the ideas. It doesn't it doesn't really matter in that sense. In that sense, many politicians are not very interesting. I mean, someone like Joe Biden is a perfect example of someone who's just reflective of the general zeitgeist, you know. And if things are going to the left, then he'll move a bit to the left as well. And if things are moving to the right, then he'll move a bit to the right as well. You know, that's just how these people are. That's what they do for a job. And that's why they've they've been there for decades, because they adjust. So the challenge for an activist or a writer or, or any citizen that wants to make a change is, yeah, how do you push new ideas forward that maybe today are dismissed as unreasonable or unrealistic, but might actually become reality in the future? And if we then look at the, the last 10 to 15 years, there are reasons to be hopeful because we have seen that happening. I mean, tax evasion, for example, or tax avoidance you know, by the, by the very rich. Um, a lot of people are very angry about that nowadays. And then you would guess that, you know, it's 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 worse than it has ever been. But the reality is that actually we've made progress. We've made real progress. Switzerland, for example, uh, used to have these bank secrecy laws. Well, they've been abolished, basically, under pressure of the US. Um, why are more more angry about it now? Because there's more publicity around it and there's more effective activism around it. 10 years ago or 15 years ago, the situation was much worse, but no one was talking about it. You know, that's the irony, I think, of effective activism is that it often gives you the feeling that things are worse than ever. But actually, when people are starting to get angry, that's the moment when you're making progress. That's also why 
you know, I think that Black, Black Lives Matter is a perfect example of this. The biggest protest movement in the history of the United States. Why is it the biggest protest movement in the history of the United States? Because we have made genuine progress combating racism. racism. We're not nearly there. Don't get me wrong. Not nearly there. Um, but how many George Floyds have there been before George Floyd that didn't cause this massive uprising? Well, a lot. <laughs> um, so that's sort of... It's, it, I know it's difficult to wrap your head around it, especially if you follow the news, and it, then it's very easy to become pessimistic. But I think it's good to remember that when you see a lot of people getting angry about something, it's also a reason to be hopeful. One of the things that we've, you know, the, one of the many things that has arisen in this crisis is obviously lots of people have had to work at home if they can. We're talking mm -hmm. about middle-class professionals. There's a class divide. A lot of mm -hmm. working-class people have had to go out and work Mm -hmm. uh, but nonetheless, a huge numbers of people have been furloughed, for example. Um, do you think this will help revitalize, for example, something I know you're supportive of, which is, mm -hmm. you know, this idea maybe of a four-day week that we can mm -hmm. redistribute, we can have a different form of work-life balance after the crisis. I mean, what do you think about that as, a, as, a, as an idea whose time has come maybe partly because of the crisis? Well, maybe this crisis will help us to realize there was so much slack or uselessness basically in in the economy as we had it uh as you as you probably know i mean we've we've seen research in the past couple of years into this phenomenon of bullshit jobs you know this was one of the saddest things of of 2020 that you know the great anthropologist david graeber passed away who coined this term and that is really helpful to understand basically how our modern economy works that in fact there are millions of people who are highly educated and you know get great salaries and have beautiful linkedin profiles but who don't really contribute anything um to society who are not you know genuine wealth creators and um both because we've seen these lists of the so-called vital workers but also because in times of crises people just i think often just want to do something valuable um it becomes more painful <laughs> i don't know to do your useless office job writing emails to people you don't really care about or writing reports no one's ever going to read um i mean maybe in normal times you can survive that but when people are dying then i think it's only human to think well you know what i want to do something that's useful so maybe that's a long-lasting effect of this crisis and I, I think it would be particularly interesting to look at young people because in the 90s both in the us and the uk and other current countries um i think there was more of a culture where making money was was important so for example if you look at ivy league graduates you know people who went to really good universities in the us um many of them used to go to work for the government or for universities in the 60s and the 70s. But then starting in the 80s and the 90s, they started to move towards either Silicon Valley or towards the banks. And what did they do there? Well, they started building these financial products that only destroy wealth or or creating algorithms that let's click on, on as much ads as, uh, as possible so that we buy stuff we don't need. Right. So that, that's really been um, a very important development that so many people started basically wasting their talents. And what I hope is that this crisis will um, create a different culture, or maybe it, it already is creating a different culture where young people um, think, you know what? I actually want to do something that matters, <laughs> that makes a difference. So that when my kids ask me 50 years or 60 years from now, uh, 
uh, granddad, grandma, what, what, what were you doing in 2020? Right. You know, when the, the, the news was clear, climate was breaking down, you were in the middle of a pandemic, what were you doing? Uh, and I think uh, many of us now want to, uh, are thinking about what our answer will be. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat all from the comfort of your home. Visit betterhelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Wow. Nice. Yeah. What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bomba socks, underwear, and T-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah, that plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas, big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. Uh, one of the, th the other things that has come out of the crisis is that the government has had to step in to pay the wages of huge numbers of the workforce. So in this country, mm -hmm. the government were paying about half the wage, ha half the working age population's wages. Mm -hmm. What... What do you think? I mean, do you think this idea of a, uh, a guaranteed income or mm -hmm. you know, universal basic income, whatever you want to mm -hmm. call it, where every citizen as a matter, as a right of citizenship has a basic income given to them guaranteed by the government? And I guess how would you work? I mean, the critiques of this, the critiques where mm -hmm. people think, well, actually, uh, this could undermine the welfare state, that there's some people mm -hmm. on the right who support negative income tax, Milton Friedman, which is kind of a form of this, mm -hmm. because they think it could supplant the welfare state, that it's it kind of, you know, replaces function of unions, for example. What mm -hmm. do you think in terms of the crisis? Well, it has it, do you think, made that come of age? Mm -hmm. But also, what do you think of those critiques? Yeah, I, I mean, it's, uh, in the first place, it's a really good example of one of those ideas that, wasn't really taken seriously five or 10 years ago and has really moved into the mainstream. In the US, we, a very successful campaign of a politician, well, he used to be a, a businessman, uh, Andrew Yang, who really galvanized uh, a lot of people and you know, built a whole movement around what he calls the freedom dividend, which is, I think, a really smart way to talk about it, by the way. A dividend says that it's not a favor but it's a right. It's something you deserve as, as a citizen of your country, simply because we've built so much wealth, right? Because our forefathers have worked so hard, because we've created all these amazing technologies, etc. Everyone deserves a share of that wealth. Everyone deserves some venture capital that they can just you know, decide for themselves what they do with it. Uh, and it's absolutely unconditional. Now, you're absolutely right that the devil is in the details. And there are some versions of a universal basic income out there that um, would be very dangerous, actually. Uh, it's, it's not a coincidence that also quite a few people on the right, in, including, as you mentioned, Milton Friedman, uh, the neoliberal economist, were also a fan of basic income. And they called it a, a negative income tax, by the way. Now, you should also recognize that there are, they, they did have some good reasons. So I do think that and this is, by the way, something that David Graeber also always said, is that the right has a more effective critique of bureaucracy than the left has. So 
one sort of right-wing good argument in favor of a basic income is that it's all about freedom. You know, people can decide for themselves how they want to spend that money. And I do think there's a tendency, especially among social Democrats, uh, that they have this this paternalism, you know, this feeling of superiority that they know what's best for those other people. And I, I think they don't. They really don't. You know, the great thing about money is that people can use it to spend it on what they need. And um, yes, if, if again, if there's one lesson of 2020 and, 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 and this year is that that actually works. You know, you can give people a lot of money and it does actually work. You know, we've seen the the relief in the US, how much money did people get? Like $1,000. And what do they use it for? Well, education, food, very sensible things. Um, so if if designed properly, I think that a guaranteed basic income is really the way forward. I think it really is. And it should be the crowning achievement of the welfare state. So you have high quality public education, universal healthcare, and a guaranteed basic income. And, and I think unions should love it, you know, because it gives uh, everyone the ability to participate in strikes. Because if you have a basic income that you can always fall back on, you can always say as a vital worker, you know what, I'm going to stop working today if you're not, you know, paying me what I deserve. And what do we do? Well, <laughs> we're in trouble. Obviously, if all the people with the bullshit jobs go on strike, no one cares, right? That doesn't really matter. So they don't really benefit from this bargaining power. But unions should be very happy because they can be more, much more effective if their members have a guaranteed basic income. One, one of the things you touched on there is this critique of, of the left, that basically what the left wants is the state to control your lives. They're not interested mm -hmm. in personal freedom. Um, and, you know, the post-war uh, in Britain, the post-war settlement established by Clement Attlee's government, um, mm -hmm. the form of nationalization they pursued, uh, it was actually pioneered by a guy called Herbert Morrison, who was on the right of the Labour Party. He's the mm -hmm. grandfather of Peter Mandelson, one of the founders of New Labour, fully enough. Um, and it was this very top-down approach to nationalization. It was basically you get, you bring industries into state control, but without participation by those who work in them and not those who use the services. Mm -hmm. um, so it was quite easy to privatize them because, you know, Thatcher could say, well, how is this really public ownership? Because how the public has no ownership over them. Mm -hmm. So what do you think in terms of how the left can articulate talking about democracy and freedom was it mm -hmm. was it look like in practice not just in terms of politics mm -hmm. but also the economy well look owen i must be honest here i think there's a there's a real tension in in my thinking here and i'm i'm curious to hear what your thoughts are but i think the big dilemma is that on the one hand i'm enthusiastic about things like participatory democracy and, uh, you know, giving everyone a universal basic income and giving people the freedom to decide for themselves, you know, how they want to live their lives and and having the state uh, as, a, as a way to give people the means to do that. Mm -hmm. But then when I think about the biggest challenge of our time, climate change, I think that even many people on the left still, still underestimate just what it means. I mean, you've got, you've got outright climate denial and that it's, it's becoming more and more ir irrelevant by the day, but you still have climate denial light. And I think most of us are into climate denial light because if we would really take the science seriously, then we'd, we'd be quite radically changing both our individual lives and our political views, right? Because what you need is a massive mobilization of the whole economy. And um, 
you need way higher taxes. Um, it's, um, it's, it's often compared to mobilization during wartime. Now, I hear a lot of lefties enthusiastically talking about wartime mobilization uh, in the US, you know, the Second World War. And then it sometimes comes across as if that was some kind of happy clappy time when everyone came together and it was like, yes, we're going to beat the Nazis and it's wonderful. Well, actually, if you study the history of mobilization um, in the US back then, it, it, it wasn't that nice. You know, they really cracked down on civil liberties. Um, they uh, had to rein in uh, consumption by people. You didn't have the freedom to buy a lot of stuff that you uh, used to be able to buy. Uh, as I said, taxes had to go very, very high. Now, obviously, especially on the rich, but I think it's an illusion to think that, uh, the, you know, people in the middle class won't have to pay much more in taxes as well. And, um, you know, that's uh, uncomfortable and it's unpopular. I wish I wish I could just tell the story. Well, we're going to solve climate change by just letting the rich pay their taxes and that's going to be enough. And then, you know, it's going to be this wonderful, happy time where we all come together, have a guaranteed basic income, universal health care for everyone, and you don't have to sacrifice anything personally. But to be honest, I really don't think that's that's realistic. I mean, in terms of the climate emergency, I mean, it's mm -hmm. interesting because obviously we're, we're going through this terrible crisis at the moment, but it's nothing compared to the existential crisis of the climate emergency with mm -hmm. the actions that now, what we're talking about, nine years, mm -hmm. let's take urgent action to bring global temperatures um, below one and a half centigrade, below a pre-industrial level. Mm -hmm. uh, and we're already seeing, of course, the impacts of the climate emergency, extreme weather and so on, mm -hmm. uh, destabilized ecosystems, people forced to leave, and that, that will be magnified. I mean, how optimistic do you think that this could be the trial run, that what we've gone through now could end up, uh, you know, showing what the state can do if if forced to do something in an emergency? Mm -hmm. I mean, I suppose the, the thing is, this is such an immediate, obvious, you know, mm -hmm. action spread very quickly. You have to do something now, otherwise you're mm -hmm. overwhelmed. So it's, it's not the same. Yeah. But how, how optimistic do you think this is in terms yeah. of driving forward emergency action to deal mm -hmm. with the biggest crisis of all? Mm -hmm. Well, in some circles, it has become sort of fashionable. And I mean, maybe this is an activist, a strategy of activists as well, uh, to say that nothing is happening, you know, that we're totally failing and that, you know, governments are not uh, delivering and not making their targets. Um, I, I see something, something different happening, especially if you look what's happening in the European Union. I mean, it is really hopeful to see uh, how far we've come compared to five years ago. Uh, now, obviously, Europeans, uh, politicians are not very good at coming up with their own, you know, language. They're not very good at, you know, giving rhetorical speeches. So they steal language from the Americans. They use terms like uh, the, the Green Deal um, because there's no real, I don't know, <laughs> European uh, uh, history to, to refer to here, I guess. Um, but then if you look at what's actually happening, I mean, Americans are good at giving speeches, but Europeans, even though it's relatively boring, I mean, I, I see all the problems with the European Union there, um, but I've become much more hopeful on the on the actual things that are happening. Just a couple of things. Many people will have never heard of the European emission trading system, but it's actually, you know, one of the biggest, biggest markets in the world right now. That is one of the you know most effective way that we're mitigating climate change. It, and it is, it is really starting to work better and better because the price of, 
of having to that you have to buy the rights to uh, to emit carbon is, is actually going up right now um and um uh, also if you look at the the technology you know the price of uh, solar energy going down by around 90% in the last 10 years. Wind energy uh, also becoming much, much uh, cheaper. Um, if you look at a, a lot of projects, so for example, here in the Netherlands, as usual, we're lacking, lagging behind, but the plants are, are genuinely ambitious, right? Like a quarter of the North Sea should, should be full with windmills um, uh, like just uh, 10 or 15 years from now. That is that is impressive. Now I, I I know that's not nearly enough, but it is a result. And uh, one of the dangers of continuously saying nothing is happening, nothing is changing, they're not listening, is that people become depressed and cynical, and they they lose hope, and so they don't do anything anymore. They become cynics, and cynicism is a form of laziness, I believe. So obviously you should keep the pressure, but I think it's also important to really recognize that we have made progress. Just one last thing to say here is only a couple of years ago, I was incredibly cynical and depressed about the European U Union. Uh, you know, we've seen what happened to Greece. I mean, you had Yanis Varoufakis on recently. Anyone who's read any, anything of his works knows just, just the, the atrocity of, of, of a whole generation of, of, politicians without any vision basically kept on stamping Greece in the face um, with the illusion that that was going to make us richer, which obviously it wasn't. But um, that really, really has changed. It, it absolutely um, is, a, is, a, is a different Europe today uh, than it was, I think, five years ago, which is also, uh, I think, um, really to the credit of someone like Varoufakis, who never gave up on his European dreams, even though, you know, uh, despite everything he, ex he experienced, he never said, "Well, let's let's all step out of the EU." Now, it's always the idea to reform it, and I, I totally uh, agree with that. Um, you're a very distinguished author, uh, but before I ask you about humankind, um, I know you're sick of talking about this, but <laughs> well, it must have happened to you as well with books, right? Is that yeah, exactly? I but mean, writing books I'm is quite fun, but at some point you're starting to get so sick of yourself. Yeah, I mean, I books uh, is kind of like a, it's like an ex that won't leave you alone. I'm joking. No, <laughs> yeah. before I ask you about your book, so the one thing, I, another thing, I think you're sick of talking about probably is mm. the Davos speech, which went viral, and you must be sick mm. of talking about that. Uh, in fact, let's just put a little clip of of it now. This is my first time at Davos, and uh, and I find it quite a bewildering experience, to be honest. I mean, 1,500 private jets have flown in here to hear Sir David Attenborough speak about, you know, how we're wrecking the planet. And, uh, I mean, I hear people talk in the language of participation and justice and equality and transparency. But then, I mean, almost no one raises the real issue of tax avoidance, right? And of the rich just not paying their fair share. I mean, it feels like I'm at a firefighters, firefighters conference and no one's allowed to speak about water, right? Now that clip, that clip went, went viral. Now, a, a couple of questions that always come up, and I know you've had to talk about this, is mm. how did someone get there to be able to say these things? And secondly, what do you think it said that that went so viral it struck such a chord? I think I slipped through, uh, Owen. I think uh, they didn't fully realize who I was when they invited me. As you know, the idea of a universal basic income had become more and more popular in the years before 2019 when I was in Davos, um, especially in the circles of tech elites in Silicon Valley. The idea was that universal basic income was going to be the solution to technological un unemployment. So 
I guess they thought, you know what? We want someone to talk about universal basic income. And then they Googled UBI and they found out that there are around 10 people who are somewhat of an expert in the field or who have at least written about it, uh, about it quite a bit. And they realized that nine of them are gray old men. And the one other is this uh, crazy young Dutch guy who calls himself a historian. And I thought, <laughs> I guess they thought, well, let's invite that guy. Um, and then I, I went to Davos. Actually, they invited me the year before that as well, but I, I couldn't make it because I was already going to some other book festival. Uh, but then in 2019, I did go because, I mean, I was just curious. I mean, everyone knows Davos and everyone knows that, knows that the uh, evil elites are going there to uh, build this conspiracy to rip us all off. Um, but you go there and what you realize is much more shocking and terrifying, which is that these people are actually quite friendly and they're quite nice. And they're interesting and they've read your books carefully um and they talk about things like climate change and feminism and inequality and they watch david attenborough's new movie and a lot of people in the audience start crying when they see how we're wrecking the planet but they don't really think about for a second that they they flew in with their private yes you know and that actually it's their own corrupt business models that are wrecking the planet uh and destroying our world so it was an, it was a crazy experience. And uh, I just walked around there for a couple of days. It's, it's also like a cost system. So you have to imagine that everyone gets like a, a, a pass that gives you access. And the journalists are like the lowest of the low. You know, they can't go anywhere, only like in some public spaces. And then there are, uh, you know, some, some experts or people of the organization. And then there are sort of the the people who've really been invited to, to give a talk like me. So I was actually quite high up. I could attend all kinds of, um, you know, things that happened behind doors. And that was also, I mean, frustrating because every time I raised the T word, you know, said anything about taxes, I got quite a bit of pushback. Uh, and I thought, well, this is weird. Uh, and then I knew that the last thing I was going to do on the conference was on Friday was going to be live stream. Probably a couple of hundred people were, were going to watch. And I, I uh, just basically, yeah, decided to ignore the moderator's questions and gave a little speech about taxation that suddenly went viral. Um, in terms of just, I mean, it was quite a moment, by the way, it really did go viral. If you haven't seen, I mean, I think most people watching this will have seen it, and but nonetheless, it's, it, was a, it, was, it was a very effective piece of oratory. Um, just a couple of other things there. So humankind, your block. So a lot of the critique made against those of us who want to redistribute wealth and power, get, create a new society, is very much founded in a very negative sense of human nature mm -hmm. being innate, which is that we are we are greed, we are acquisitive at all expense, the expense of everybody else, uh, that the only thing we really care about is our family. So we'll, we'll, we'll build up riches for their benefit. Um, but fundamentally, we're, we don't care about the rest of society. We're, we're not altruistic. We're... Mm -hmm. Uh, were selfish creatures and therefore mm -hmm. conservatism goes along the grain of what it is to be a human being. Absolutely. You know, if there's one central dogma of conservatism or of people on the right, it is that most people deep down are selfish and that this is what it means to be a realist, that you have to acknowledge that people are just selfish, which also means that you need hierarchy because if you have an actual equal democratic society where people can just do whatever they want, you know, where you have genuine freedom, that will result in some kind of war of all against all, as the British philosopher Thomas Hobbes put it. Um, 
And this idea comes back again and again and again. Uh, there's a Dutch primatologist, uh, Frans de Waal, who calls it veneer theory, the notion that our civilization is only a thin layer, only a thin veneer, and that in times of crises especially, we show who we really are. When we get the opportunity, when we suddenly have you know, the freedom, uh, we start looting, we start plundering, and we uh, behave horribly, and therefore we need managers and CEOs and the army and the police and kings and queens and career politicians because we cannot trust each other. We cannot trust people. Um, now, if there's one central dogma of a totally different way of thinking or what I, you know, what I think sh should be the progressive way of thinking, it is a different view, a more hopeful view of human nature. Because if it is true that people are not angels, but are actually deep down pretty decent, then maybe we can get rid of the CEOs and the managers and the career politicians. Maybe we can move to a much more egalitarian democratic society. So sometimes people uh, think that, oh, Rutger has now written a very, uh, uh, I don't know, warm, self-helpy book about uh, the kindness of people. No, I, I really, I really believe this is a radical political argument because once you update your view of human nature, you can do everything differently. You know, how you design your schools, your prisons, the workplace, the way you do democracy, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Changing your view of human nature has profound implications for everything. Um, one of the things that people have pulled up beforehand, here we go. So mm -hmm. people are very excited to know that I was interviewing you. So someone said, uh, someone called, uh, this is Nick Dossolini. Desolino. One of the most frustrating things about the pandemic is some people refusing to see that their behaviours, for example, wearing a mask, respecting social distancing rules, affects others. This seems to contradict Rutger's argument mm -hmm. in the kind that we are wired to work together and to be kind to each other. I had to put in a little, hmm. little prodigy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Prodigy. You know, a couple of things here. So in the first place, wearing a mask at some point became a sign of your political loyalty, especially in the US. You know, it became this groupish thing where if you were a progressive or on the left or a Democrat, you were, yes, I'm proudly wearing my mask. And then obviously, if you were on the other side, uh, if you're a Republican, you were like, well, I'm not doing that. Um, and this is, you know, this is the, one of the dark sides of human nature is that, yes, we've evolved to be friendly and to work together. And this is maybe even our true superpower. It's the reason why we've conquered the globe, that we can cooperate on such a massive scale. But we are also very inclined to think in in-group and out-group terms. And we very often do the stupidest or even the stupidest or even the, the nastiest things in the name of loyalty and comradeship because we don't want to let our own group down. Um, and the other thing that is obviously highly paradoxical about this pandemic is that you got to keep in mind that you know we are still highly physical biological creatures. We've not been uploaded into the cloud yet. We we want to touch each other, feel each other, hear each other, see each other. We've been designed or, or shaped by evolution for face-to-face -face contact. We're one of the very few species in the whole animal kingdom with the ability to blush. You know, it's just, I think, a very telling fact, and um, which you d don't see in many of our political leaders, by the way, which is, I think, oh, also a very telling political fact that they seem to have lost a bit of their, uh, well, humanity. Maybe that's putting it too strongly, but... Um, it's also one, one thing that is very uh, unique about humans is that we can look one another in the eyes. So we have white around our irises, uh, white sclera, which means we can track each other's gazes, which is also a way to establish trust. You know, also all the other primates, 
the chimpanzees, the orang utangs, you name it. Um, they don't have that. They've, they've got like dark around their eyes, uh, which makes it hard to track their gazes and which is obviously not very good to establish trust. You know, they're a little bit like mafiosi wearing shades. Um, now all of these things that are so important to building community, to building trust, to building a society in general, um, we don't have that anymore. Well, we have, we have like zoom, we've got our computers, we've got our devices, but it's not, it's not good enough as we know. Now, if you take that into account, that basically this virus attacks our very humanity, our way of being human, uh, of working together, um, I think it's incredibly impressive how we're still managing, you know, that still the vast majority of people is willing to abide by the rules and change their lifestyle quite radically to save as many lives as possible. You know, if you look at it that way, and if you, you know, zoom out far enough, I think that's the real headline, just this explosion of cooperation. Still, even though it's highly counterintuitive, I think it's genuinely impressive. Before we end on a, I'm going to try and end on a high. That's what <laughs> we try, try to aspire to anyway. Um, one of the things that we tried to do with this channel, which has been up and running now for a couple of months nearly, mm-hmm. is the fact that obviously so much of the media is run by vested interests who have a, have a, uh, an interest in preserving a status quo from which they directly profit and mm-hmm. they can, they have a near monopoly over the means of information or have done for mm-hmm. a long time anyway. Uh, and therefore there's a need to have alternative media outlets, which can reach people with alternatives like we're doing mm-hmm. here with you right now. And so Paul got in touch because I know you involved something called the correspondent, which was an alternative media outlet that came mm-hmm. to an end. So I was just, Paul was wondering, and I'm interested too in, in how supporting and developing alternative media outlets and making them effective. We have Navarra in this country, we mm-hmm. have our news. Mm-hmm. So we've got this, but it's still quite a small ecosystem and, and it needs mm-hmm. to grow a lot. So what, what are your thoughts on that? You know, the correspondent, it, uh, it is still very successful in the, in the Netherlands and we have got around 70,000 members. I, uh, I personally always write in Dutch, so my English is not good enough. I've got to brilliant translators. And this is also, by the way, I, I see it as a benefit because, um, you know, so often uh, I, I see this, uh, uh, you know, when something's happening in Dutch politics or in the Dutch news, you're always inclined to comment. But then when something happens in, in American news or something like that, and I want to formulate a tweet about it, I'm like, hmm, is my grammar correct here? And then I like, well, what the heck? I, I won't tweet about it, which is prob- probably good because it saves you a lot of time and actually helps you to work on what you really need to work on, which is your next book. Um, but <laughs> um, so the Dutch correspondent is, is going going really well still. But sadly, the the English correspondent didn't make it. Um, I think probably one of the reasons is that you need you need a community behind you, right? I think uh, in, in the Netherlands here, as I said, we have 70,000 paying members who don't see themselves, I think at least many of them don't don't see themselves as just consumers, but they see themselves as part of a movement that is changing something. Um, and the way we look at journalism, it's not a, it's not a one-way thing, right? It's not only sending information out there, telling people what they should think, but also asking questions. So for example, if you write about education as a journalist, well, probably you've got, you know, more than a thousand readers who work in education and collectively they know much more about education than you do. So this is one of the single, you know, uh, most untapped sources of knowledge in journalism. Um, The question is, how can you get it? Um, And um, 
yeah, so we've been trying to 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 work at that, but uh, as I said, in English it, it it hasn't been successful. I think one of uh, one of the reasons that it became maybe too international, and when it's like something transnational, like I don't know, the UN, everyone thinks the UN should exist, but people are not going to pay like a membership ship of the UN because it's like it's very distant, isn't it? Um, so um, yeah, still problematic. One one last thing. You know, a couple of years ago, I was in Norway and I was talking to some uh, Norwegian journalists there about, you know, in general, the, the climate and how the newspapers were doing. And to be honest, I obviously read the coverage about my own book, but also about other issues. And it struck me just the incredibly high uh, quality of the Norwegian journalism. And so I asked them, you know, why are why are Norwegian newspapers so good compared to, say, you know, um, American or British, and why don't you really have a tabloid culture, for example? And the honest, simple answer was every time, well, it's all subsidized heavily. You know, it's just uh, the government that pays uh, pays a lot, a lot of money, and that goes into these uh, newspapers, and that makes the journalism possible. Yeah, well, um, maybe that's something to learn from, and it is something that maybe um, uh, we are ready for because. Uh, there, there was someone who tweeted. I really like that. He's, he said, like, my my person of the year. And then he, he included a picture of the Leviathan, you know, the 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 cover of Thomas Hobbes' book, you know, the, the, the British philosopher that I mentioned, the return of the big state who can actually do things. And for decades, we've been told and we've been telling ourselves that the government is the problem, that governments can't do anything. And we now see the results. What you get if you tell that governments can't do anything well then in the midst of a crisis then indeed they fail that's that's what you're going to get and we can't afford that anymore we really can't just finally let's let's try and end on a high so mm -hmm. if we were gonna you know I mean, you you wrote of course utopia for realists but mm -hmm. for those you know for a long time there was uh, i mean this was um the late mark fisher wrote this that he was paraphrasing maybe slavoj zizek or frederick mm -hmm. jameson wasn't sure but yeah, uh, it became you know easier, easier. To, uh, yeah. <laughs> easier to imagine the end of the world than it yeah. is to imagine the end of capitalism. Mm -hmm. And for a while, that got it's been disrupted because you got the rise of various left movements in America and Britain, mm -hmm. where though you know got a bit of a kicking. Mm -hmm. So, what do you what are the kind of broad contours of what a new society could look like? Mm -hmm. what, what is within our reach mm -hmm. in a kind of succinct way to leave people on? So I've never been really interested in all those discussions that I think you especially have that in the US about capitalism versus socialism or the government versus the market. I think what this new generation of economists have shown us is that you actually can get some synergies. Take Mariana Mazzucato, for example. I don't know if you had her on the show already. We have, we have, we have. Okay, had well, I mean, she, she explains to us that you know, real path-breaking innovation is almost always financed by the government, and then businesses can use those innovations to build new products, such as, say, the iPhone, which is great. And if they do, you know, go ahead. But then if they've made a lot of money with that, then they should pay their taxes and not hide all their money in tax paradises so that we can fund the next round of innovation. Now, is that capitalistic? I don't know. And I don't really care either. You know, is, is Sweden a, a capitalistic country? Yes, probably, but it does have universal healthcare and high quality public education. 
it, I think it should also have a guaranteed basic income and, and many other things. But I think that sometimes these philosophical discussions that are like, I am anti-capitalist, let's destroy capitalism, maybe don't really help. But then on the other hand, um, it's also important to, to recognize that there are, in any movement, there are different roles to play. So you need people who are willing to be the other activists who are beaten up by the riot police, right? You need those who really put a lot of pressure, but you also need people who are more like the networkers who, I don't know, maybe they go to Davos and they, they, um, they try to push new ideas forwards. There are different roles to play in every movement and there's not one right way of, of changing the world. Um, and that, that's maybe, uh, I don't know if this is a hopeful note to end, but maybe it's a, it's a useful note to end. I've al always believed that people on the right are, are often better at building coalitions than on the left. Because on the left, so often we have this narcissism of minor differences, right? And we hate the people who are 5% different from us. We hate them more than, you know, the fascists on the other side. And um, if, if, we, uh, if we, we keep on having that attitude, then, then nothing's, nothing's going to change. But I don't think we are, we are that, that is happening because actually one of the, the reasons for all these successes in the past couple of years it could be, is because people have been building coalitions. Well, an absolute honor. Thank you. I actually do feel more optimistic than I did at the beginning of the conversation. So <laughs> That's great to hear, Owen. <laughs> just for my own selfish purposes, in, in the midst of a British cold winter under lockdown uh, with, yeah. the, with the terror, the tragedy of, of the pandemic, catastrophically mishandled by government it's yeah. good to hear some some realism and optimism uh, uh mixed together so thank you so much happy new year thanks Alan. really enjoyed this cheers for listening everyone i hope you enjoyed that chat and if you do want to help us get even bigger and better then all your support is appreciated either in the supporter function in the description or patreon.com forward slash owenjones84 where you will have a say over what we do and who we talk to you. Um, please give us five stars on our iTunes to help get the message across. More people will listen, which is, you know, the plan. Thanks for listening, everyone, and I'll speak to you soon. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365 day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.